mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and I could write a blog, I have thoughts. Joining me is writer and lobster killer, qu'est-ce Fiona Zublin. Hi. Welcome back. I love this um, recurring theme of you coming on to talk about American girls in Paris. Yeah, and there's a lot of that in this movie. Honestly in a really different way than I remembered last time I watched it, which I guess movies are very different depending on the people we are when we watch them. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot here. Yes. So very, very intriguing text message pitch from you, Fiona Zublin. Okay. <laughs> so Fiona, there is a very clear public narrative on Julie and Julia. And it is that people love the Meryl Streep section of the movie, which is set in the 1950s in Paris. And people fucking hate the Amy Adams version of uh, side of the movie to the extent that all over YouTube, there are so many edits of this that is just Julie and Julia, but no Julie. <laughs> you, on the other hand, have a much more forgiving uh, take on Amy Adams and Julie. Well, I just think that um, inside of us are two wolves. And one of them is Meryl Streep and one of them is Amy Adams. And so I watched this movie a lot when I was first living in France and going to lots of bureaucratic appointments and feeling sort of the um, the general vibe is much as in the Julia section of the movie when she's at the Cordon Bleu and there's this really rude French woman who keeps saying, do you know how to bone a duck? And... You know, and, and people just don't want her wherever she goes. And through her, like, American stick-to-itiveness and, uh, and, you know, loud personality and, and knowing what she wants, she, she manages to break through and, and, you know, win the day over the, the mean bureaucrats. And every day I was going to these bureaucratic meetings and, you know, having someone, like, sneer at me in French. And, and then I would go home and I would watch her, you know, defeat the Cordon Bleu and just feel like, yeah, I can do it. This is great. But I was also having meltdowns on my kitchen floor. And I was like, Amy Adams sucks. Amy Adams is horrible. Then I was like, you know what? No, Fiona, you have to love yourself when you're having meltdowns on the kitchen floor. The same as when you're being brave. And I think everybody needs to love themselves when they're having meltdowns on the kitchen floor. And I think that not appreciating the Amy Adams side of this movie is like refusing to acknowledge that that is part of us too. And also Amy Adams meltdowns are like incredibly good. There's this part where she like, drops a chicken on the floor and then falls on the floor and then her husband comes over to tell her that someone's on the phone for her and she just sort of like kicks her little leg like a baby. It's insane. Like, I really think Amy Adams' performance in this movie is very annoying um, and she is a pain and she's very drab in this weird way. But the performance is also very good and very funny. It's just not very likable. Um, And I kind of love Amy Adams for that, for just going full like... Being a pain, being drab, you would not want to live with her, but that doesn't mean yes. that that's not a side of you too. 
It's so true. I mean, the fact that you said there are two wolves inside of us and one of us is Julie and one of us is Julia. Oh and we God. truly, it reminds me a lot, actually, of I remember when um, the TV show Girls came out a few years ago. And at the same time, I was I had moved to London and I was living very miserably and I loved it because I felt like somebody was going through it with me, even though obviously there is that, um, you know, separation of like, these are very much more privileged characters. Some of them are living off their parents. They have much nicer apartments. And crucially, they had what I didn't have, which was friends. Um, but it still it still felt like, oh, like there's somebody else out there and I could see through it. I could see the sort of the Lena Dunham sort of sensibility really comforted me. But at the same time, lots of people I met said who were in the same situation said they couldn't watch it because they didn't they just couldn't deal with that level of like grim early 20s. Um, vibe because they were going to through it too much. And I do think. You cannot watch this movie if you're not 100% about your life. Yes, I completely agree. And actually, I think Girls is a really interesting example of that because I remember watching episodes of Girls and just feeling almost like I didn't like it because it was so cringe, you know, and and I I, I felt the need Mm -hmm. to distance myself from those characters. I feel like once you accept that, like, those characters are going through a lot of what you are and that you recognize yourself in even in their worst moments, then Girls becomes a lot better. Uh, and a lot funnier. And uh, here's me reckoning with the wolf inside me. I I was really I was able this time around, despite the deeply unlikable performance <laughs> from it from Amy Adams. And maybe we'll talk about why it's so unlikable. Maybe it's the writing. Maybe it's the staging. Um, I I don't know. Um, but I was able to recognize the parts of myself that were Julie. Um, I think the the part that actually stung the most was they're having this like really the we'll get into the plot summary but it really is the story of her marriage breaking down and nobody at the end of the movie thinks those two people should still be married. <laughs> um, but she says something to him um he, no, he says something to her when he's really frustrated with her and he says oh by the way and stop calling me a saint I hate when you call me a saint. And it reminds me of like this argument me and Gav had years ago where like I think in my writing it was when I was writing a lot of like personally type column stuff um, for digital and being really personal. But I was always acting as if I was this quirky, unmanageable, kooky lady and he was just this blank slate for which to my kookiness could be ricocheted off. And when I saw that in I don't do that anymore, I don't think, but. When I saw that, I was, I, it was physically painful. Even just this afternoon watching There's this, so you know? much in the Julie storyline that's about how we kind of... You can see her looking at Julia Child's life and trying to fit her life into the same mold. And I think that's one reason that she goes so hard on this, like, oh, you're so supportive, you're such a saint to her husband, because that's what Julia Child had, and that's like a big part of her legend I feel like is that these two people they were so in love you know and and you can even see it in the way that she throws this hideous costume party for her birthday it's just so awful and no one's having a good time no one no one they're the worst people in the world but couldn't you see someone doing exactly that in like girls and it being played in this hilarious way and I feel like the movie just didn't quite get the tone correct 
so, so fucking true. I could so see Hannah Horvath doing the exact same thing and Adam exactly. just kind of looming around in the background being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and it actually, it would, the, the movie would have been better if it played into how annoying it was in that moment. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to it when we get to it. I'm going to do the plot summary yes. real quick. Do the plot summary. Julie and Julia is a 2009 film based on a book of the same title by Julie Powell. It tells the story of Julie, an amateur cook who is about to turn 30 and works answering calls from 9-11 survivors trying to claim insurance payouts, specific and terrible. Directionless and miserable, she decides to cook every recipe from Julia Childs, mastering the art of French cooking while writing about it on her new blog. The film intersects with chapters from Julia Childs' own life in 1950s Paris, and the split timeline tells us the story of two women striving for excellence and finding identity through food. Would you say that's a fair enough summary? Because it's kind of a directionless fucking movie. Yeah, I mean, one of the really interesting things about it is, so it's really long. I think both you and I uh, earlier were, were commenting on how long it was. And uh, and when I was re-watching it, I realized that part of the reason it feels so long is that there's no real climax to the movie. There's a part where she bones a duck in front of a televised Julia Child. But, like, there's no real dramatic arc to it. It's yeah. just about... You know, there's there's no sinking Titanic or anything like that. It it just kind of goes along. <laughs> yeah, no, it just kind of goes along. And there's all these kind of like, even like I'm I'm like a big um, big believer in what what Gav calls the Frogger theory. <laughs> yes, the Frogger theory, which is the the video game Frogger is just about getting a frog from one side of the road to the other, but you care because it's your frog. And I, I, I think about it every day. <laughs> Inside of you are two frogs, Meryl Streep and Amy Adams. <laughs> but my Amy Adams frog, man, it, you do struggle to care about that fucking frog because like this, this, the, the stakes can be minuscule and still be important. But the minuscuity of these stakes, despite the fe- heavy featuring of 9-11 in this movie... <laughs> It's like, like, um, first she thinks she's going to cook dinner for, um, fucking Mm -hmm. Julia Childs' editor who doesn't show up (laughs) because it's raining. And you're like, and that's like a really damp squib of a plot point. And it's really quite huge in the movie. And then the other thing, which is, um, she gets, she gets a little bit of fame and then it turns out Julia Childs thinks she sucks for reasons we never find out. (laughs) The thing is, like... I feel like a lot of times you see characters go through something where they're kind of obnoxious, especially in rom-coms, but there's a point where they kind of blossom into likability. And Amy Adams never does that. Like when she's depressed, it's annoying. When she is happy, it's even more annoying. It's worse when she's happy. (laughs) There's this moment, like Amy Adams' character, she's clearly like obsessed with, you know, she went to Amherst, she... Uh, has half a novel finished. She has this whole narrative. She has a really weird idea about what counts as real work. Like, honestly, to me, like, answering calls, trying to help people get their insurance post 9-11, like, I'm sure it was draining and awful, but it was real fucking work. Um, Yeah. You know, and... And so when she's like, oh, a blog, that's not real writing. But like, as soon as you get a book deal, then that's real writing. And like, what is real and what isn't? She has a lot of ideas. Anyway, 
she acts like she's in a play all the time. And in that <laughs> phone call, when when the Christian Science Monitor calls her and it's like, oh, we want you to have dinner with Julia Child's editor. <laughs> By the way, it's so weird that it's the Christian Science Monitor. I know, right? I like, did this, is this like a pl- plot point from Julie Powell's book? I've never read Julie Powell's book, so I have no idea. No, neither have I. But like, it's, it's so annoying. She gets this phone call, right? And it's clear from her interaction on the phone that someone is coming over for dinner who she is excited about and her husband is off to the side being like who who is it who's coming and then I think she gets off the phone and he says who who's coming to dinner and she just looks at him like guess who's coming to dinner and I'm like did you think of that line during the conversation and even though it doesn't make any sense as a response to him already having guessed who's coming to dinner you were like I must say my line guess that someone is coming to dinner (laughs) yeah it's like I when you think of a really good joke and then you say it again because you no one laughed and you're yeah, like yeah even though the context has moved on it would yeah. no longer make sense for you to say it oh man yeah, yeah that, and then and then the whole thing is that like because you as the audience think it's gonna be Julia Child but then it's just this editor someone who the character herself has not heard of <laughs> yeah it's so weird it's such a weird movie but like it's so weird but it's so perfect for this show. It's so per- because it had this tremendously mixed reception, and I think also this thing of like the fact that it is Nora Ephron's last movie, and I don't mm-hmm. think we think of it that way as a culture. I think when we think of Nora Ephron movies, we think of the Golden Trio, right? We think of Sleepless, yeah. You've Got Mail, and When Harry Met Sally, and like that's yeah. what we see as being her contribution to cinema, and they're huge contributions because every rom com that's come after them has been trying to ape one of those three, right? Um, but then we have Julia and Julia, and I think even though it's a, a, a very uneven, very long, kind of plotless film with very bad frog stakes, um, there's still something magical about it because it, it sort of epitomizes a lot of what Nora Ephron cared about as an artist. Do you know what I mean? Which yeah. is she cared about food and mm-hmm. she cared about middle-aged women being people. With really amazing fucking kitchens. Um, (laughs) Oh my god. All of the apartments in this movie are great. Except when they move out to Queens and she's like, why do we live in Long Island City? Which like is is a perfectly fine place to live. Like I have been to Long Island City. It's lovely. Um, and, And then he says, we're living in 900 square feet. That's not that big of an apartment. That's like, that's not a house. Um, I don't... And, and the bed is in the dining room in their apartment. It's like a giant studio, but it is still a studio. I'm like, you moved to an outer borough for that? For this? <laughs> and like in 2002, you know? Yeah. God, there's so much in this movie that is great about food. And there's so much that doesn't make sense. I love the fact that she's never eaten an egg. And her first egg is a poached egg, which is, mm-hmm. I think, a pretty advanced form of egg <laughs> that's an advanced egg if you're and gonna imagine, start with your egg eating you start scrambled right imagine if that's your first egg that you eat you'd be so confused that's an advanced egg it's an advanced egg and the worst part is she poaches the egg and then it goes to the dinner and they each have two poached eggs and it took her like three tries to get the first one so they've used conservatively like 300 eggs to make this dinner <laughs> and everything must be cold and I was just like, so you're eating a cold poached egg. And you're like, oh, this is so amazing. So, like, I guess? 
Yeah, I I guess, and it's it, that is sort of one of the examples of what as well of like um when when Julie is sad, it's it's bad, but when Julie is happy, it's worse. <laughs> because when she starts like giggling with glee because she loves her egg so much, I was like, someone take this bitch out and shoot her in the head. <laughs> parts and I realize you know we're on a podcast right now so we might also be doing this but all the parts where she's talking to journalists about like oh I just feel like Julia's with me in the kitchen and you can just like hear her rehearsing that in the mirror before they came over there's something going on with like the self-presentation that people of generation x thought was like like looked real that just like seems insane so when you watch this movie. Yes, and I kind of wish the movie got into it a little bit more because you're right, she is um she is fake as fuck. Like and it's really interesting when you because it, it is um it is Amy Adams doing a Meg Ryan performance, right? Um and it it's it's almost like in the same way that in a new Richard Curtis movie like Donald Gleason has just been anointed the new Hugh Grant and he has uh Hugh Grant's exact same inflection and it's like if you close your eyes when you're watching about time it's Hugh Grant you know it's it's very odd it's like the transference of muses or something but it's almost like when you're watching it it almost feels like the Julie Powell character has grown up watching Meg Ryan movies and mm-hmm. has memorized Meg Ryanisms and uh it's like, yeah, it's like this weird performance of likability that is so grating and nobody in her life appreciates. And least of all, her husband. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. Because, and because Amy Adams is such a good actor. Like, I oh, fucking yeah. love Amy Adams. Like, I, I'm a ride or die for a rival. You know what I mean? Um, and, and also, Amy Adams has done sort of quirky, good time girl, enchanted, on the verge of annoying thing mm-hmm. really well. So I have to think it's a choice. I think it is a choice. Um, was it the best choice? That's a question. <laughs> I know we're being bitches, but I'm having so much fun. <laughs> I know, me too. Um, can we talk a little bit about the, well, while we're talking about sort of... Um, someone growing up watching Meg Ryan movies and, and her her idea of kind of narrative and very much kind of being the main character yes, in yes. her own life. I think you get this actually in both sides of the movie. And I realize that I'm making the case that people um, don't give the Julie part of the movie enough credit, but I also think that Julia Child is more annoying than people admit that she is. Uh-huh. Um, in this movie. Uh, I don't know from real Julia Child. I, I've never seen a Julia Child TV show, you know. Um, I think I cooked one Julia Child recipe from the cookbook of our friend and friend of the pod, Kate Young, um, uh-huh. one time. It was good, but it was a French recipe, so, like, yes, it was. Um, but she also has this real vibe of being very special that is really recognizable to me from seeing a lot of specifically Americans, but also other people, Mm -hmm. um, come to Paris. Because there is this fantasy when you are a visitor in Paris of being the 
person, the only person who truly appreciates the beauty of France in a way that like other people can't. And that your your loudness and enthusiasm and, and your sort of sticking out like a sore thumb actually makes you special and great. And they actually talk about this a lot. Like um, Julia Child's husband uh, mentions, he's like, oh, you know how grumpy the French are, but Julia makes friends with a polecat. So she uh, thinks they're the sweetest people alive. And I've met so many people who were like, well, you know that the French are bastards, but they were nice to me. This man gave me a free oyster or a free apple or he talked to me like I was a person. We were really vibing, so I must be special. And I'm like, no, the French are just nice. Like, <laughs> And so this, this idea of this sort of grumpy, you know, everyone just wanting to yell at you because you're so loud and brash and American, but actually you're so special that you make it work is... A fantasy. Um, oh, it's such a beautiful fantasy, though. And But you hear it again in... Uh, there's another part in the movie, I think Julia Child is, like, writing a letter to her friend. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how, you know, for me, shopping for food is... I'm not going to try to do the Julia Child voice, but for me, shopping for food is, is what, for most women, it is to go out and buy a new dress. And I just hear, like... You know when someone says, oh, well, I'm, I'm not like a regular traveler. I just like to go to a neighborhood and just live like a local. You know, I just want to find a cute little bistro that treats me like a regular and go to the market food <gasps> shopping. And they think that this makes them really special, but that's what everybody wants. Like, That's what everybody wants. They're acting like people are, people come to cities specifically to get ripped off and go to the most famous place. Yeah, they're like, oh, everyone else loves waiting in line at the yeah. Eiffel Tower. But me, oh, I just, I just want to find, you know, a perfect cute bistro that no one else has ever heard about before. And I, I'm just weird that way. I don't know. I'm so random. Like, ugh. I had this before. I remember an old colleague of mine. She was. She went to Reykjavik for a weekend or something, a long weekend. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> ever been to Reykjavik, but like, it's small. It's a small place. It's a limited amount of things to do there. Um, and she just. She said her her husband just started like fighting with her because she couldn't stop saying, "I just want to find a small local bistro." <laughs> and he was like, "There is no small local bistro. Accept it." <laughs> Initially. My pity was very much with Julie, Amy Adams, because like her job is fucking tough. Like it is like it's an interesting choice to have that uh, 2002 setting and having her, you know, go from Queens every day, get on the train, get out and to see all the you know flowers pinned to the gates and all of that, all the tributes to people who died in the attacks. Um, and then to have her sit at this cubicle all day and to, and we get all these snapshots of these very upsetting phone calls from all these people. And we do really get the sense that this is someone who je who really does need to do something, you know, to shake things up. And But then it, mm -hmm. then we get into when, the, when it really puts a point on it, which is the famous cop salad lunch. <laughs> the worst friendships that Nora Ephron has oh, yes. ever written... She doesn't have a lot of toxic friendships in her movies, I yeah. feel like. She has, like, great friendships. Like, even if the people are dysfunctional, I mean, you know, everyone's dysfunctional, but, like, Carrie Fisher in When Harry Met Sally, Rosie O'Donnell in Sleepless in Seattle, the friendships are fantastic. And Julie kind of has one friend, but they don't really vibe, and she hates all of her college friends. Oh, despises them, yeah. By the way, I cannot believe that those women are supposed to be 29. I know, <laughs> 
they're all like 40. They're all yeah. Like, yeah. But I think that that's always the thing. People who are around your age in the past are incomprehensibly old, even if that mm-hmm. past was 2009. Um, but <laughs> I do think it's, it's I, I, my kind of interpretation of Nora Ephron's interpretation of, of that whole scene and all the various humiliations that Julie goes through in that section of the movie is that it's very much the woman who says to you and who would say to you a lot when you're in your 20s, oh my God, I wouldn't, I wouldn't live my 20s again if you paid mm-hmm. me, you know? Nora Ephron spent a lot of time writing about young people in love and made a lot of great films about young people in love. And she made this movie when she was a little older, you know? She, it was the last movie she made. I think she was in her 60s at that point. And it does feel like a woman looking back at the worst parts of her own 20s and being like, God, remember those fake fucking friendships with those awful fucking people, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And it, and that's why I think the Julia parts of the movie are so effervescent and are so full of authentic warmth and authentic friendships and authentic relationships of all kinds because it really feels like somebody who's in at middle age being like, oh, guys, you don't know how bad you have it and you don't know how good it's going to get. That's my interpretation anyway. I love this. I also love that Julie never needed to make seven aspects. She just needed to wait like 30 years and then everything was going to be fine because <laughs> she would be middle-aged like Julia Child. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. And like, I, I do think that goes through the whole Julia Child thing because... You know, like, I actually, I, I flicked through um, Nora Ephron's final essay collection... I remember nothing um, kind of while the movie was on. And there are all these bits about just like, you know, eating with friends and, and, and being a little older and the, inv- and we all know about the, I feel bad about my neck uh, essays and the feeling of invisibility as you get older. So I, I do think she does put such a fine point on like, we really have to understand if we, if we walk away from this movie, knowing anything, it's that middle-aged women who are large and loud. Fuck. <laughs> they get oh, to have yeah. sex with Stanley Tucci and there's, and Stanley Tucci is obsessed with them. Oh yeah. Obsessed with her. And I love that Stanley Tucci is like 15 years younger than Meryl Streep and yes. also a foot shorter. And like, it's just, it's the most like sexually charged relationship that Nora Ephron ever wrote. I think. Yeah. I can't think of one that is more, like, obviously a couple who fucks. Yeah. And the, she, she like, those sort of, like, oh, they're kissing now, they're definitely going to have sex scenes. They go on about 15 seconds longer than they really should, or they really would in, in another movie. And mm-hmm. it's, like, the kissing is, like, deep kissing. It's, like, real kissing. And I, I, I do think that is, like corrective surgery on the part of Efron, you know? And I really appreciate it. I agree. Well, and I, and I also think you can see that in the sort of juxtaposition of, like, because in the two stories, I mean, I, I know that there aren't really, like, giant stakes or setbacks, but you mm-hmm. see how Julia deals with setbacks and you see how Julie deals with them. And both mm-hmm. of them have this, like, initial sort of meltdown. And then Julia's like, okay, well, we're just going to do this. Like, we'll mm-hmm. move to Norway and I'll write the book there or whatever. And Julie just, like, can't get herself out of the thing because she's 29 and she thinks that everything is over. Like, as soon as there's one little setback, there's there's no way to get past it. And I guess, like, that is the benefit of not being 29 is that you realize that's not true. Oh, my God. But then Julie 
Ugh. She has her single and fabulous moment. Uh, was this before that episode came out? Because it's so similar to me that like someone's like, oh, we want you to be on the cover of the fabulous. Isn't it even the same magazine? Is it New York Magazine? I think it's New York Magazine. Yeah, her mm-hmm. friend. It's su- it's such a well-played scene. And it's like her friend being like, oh, I just want to interview you about, you know, our generation turning 30. <laughs> and then she, oh, that whole bit where it, it's so agonizing of her friend wanting to interview her and yet not being able to find the time to do it. And Amy Adams mm. just like, well, you're the one who wants to see me. And she's like trying to be sort of self-possessed and strident and confident, but she just can't really sell it totally. No. And then the next thing we see is um, her face on the cover of New York Magazine about how how terrible and sad her life is and oh. how she uh, wrote a book. She, like, like this would be worthy of a subject of a magazine. She wrote a book or she tried to write a book and failed and now she tempts. Yeah. And, th- and then Julie memorizes it, which is just the most depressing thing. <laughs> And I'm glad the movie comments on that, that they have a character say, that is so depressing that you memorize that. It's so sad. And Julie goes, oh my God, I look so fat. And her friend says, just your face. <laughs> it is so funny. The ways in which people put down Julie is fun. <laughs> it is. It is really fun. And then shortly afterwards, she finds out that her friend has a blog. It's 2002 and blogging is all the rage. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's so incensed by this. And something that we both clocked, actually, she says she can't, she, she wasn't able to focus on her novel and she hasn't been able to focus on anything because she has ADD. Yeah, that, which is so me, 2021. So 2021. Obviously, ADD and ADHD is a very real neurological condition and people have been diagnosed with it a lot lately um, because yeah they've like and I'm really not trying to you know demean that because I think people once they have a diagnostic then they can then have coping strategies for why their brain works differently than others and I think that's great and anyone getting that help is great however it has also become the excuse of people who just don't want to do things (laughs) well and you don't see julie being like i'm gonna go get an add diagnosis i'm gonna get on ritalin you can get those medications in america they're great like you should do that julie that would be fantastic then you'd finish stuff but no also i'm sure she tried adderall at amherst like come on that's that's what those schools run on um so she'd probably know already if she had ADD. Yes. This actually reminded me a lot. I don't know if... I think you were a Gilmore Girls fan, right? I actually have never seen the Gilmore Girls. No. Why did I think no. that about you? I think I just... I don't know. Is it because I talk really fast? I, I think that that might be why. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There was like this whole thing with, um, you know, Rory Gilmore, who's the sort of bright, precocious kid at the center of the Gilmore Girls. And she's supposed to have this huge future and the series ends with her following Obama on the campaign trail. And then they did a kind of a 10 years later thing on Netflix a few years ago. And Rory Gilmore has just totally sputtered out because (laughs) turns out being a really high achiever in school means that you're really used to structure in life. And there isn't structure in life. There's just people competing and fighting for the same opportunities. Also, and, didn't uh, she yeah. become a freelance journalist, a.k.a. like the least structured? That, yes, that's, she did. That's not she the... was not good at it. No, for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, I, I thought the blog thing was really interesting because I felt like Julie 
hates her friends, but she mm-hmm. only admits that something is important when one of her friends is doing it. So probably if her husband had said, why don't you start a blog, mm-hmm. like, two weeks earlier, she'd have been like, that's not real work, I'm a novelist, or whatever. And she wouldn't have done it. But because her friend is doing it, then it's real. It's like a way to compete with these people that she hates. And so then she's like, oh, I could blog. I'm a real person. That's real work. There's a lot about like what's real work and what's fake work. But also the blog software is insane. Why does it have a countdown? There's a I don't, countdown. I had it. a blog. I don't remember there being a countdown feature. Yeah, right? And also that, that people keep sending her presents. I'm like, are you putting your address on this blog? That is dangerous. Yeah, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But as we know, Nora Ephron really loved um, actresses typing and talking. Yeah, that's true. That's it's true. very much the You've Got Mail sequel in terms of actresses typing and talking to themselves <laughs> while they type. She did love that. Aww. She loved that. She loved that. She also loves, there's, there's a line in here where it was right near the beginning when Julie is talking about how cooking is so comforting because you know that if you put egg yolks and chocolate and milk together or whatever, it will get thick. And first of all, that's a line from Heartburn. And like, did Nora Ephron not think everyone was going to catch that? Like, I think it's a knowing self-reference, right? It's like the equivalent of Alfred Hitchcock putting himself in a bus stop in a movie, I think. Oh, that's, that's what I true. took from it. You know. Okay, that's fair. Um, but also, I find that it's not true. I feel like maybe this is just me being a really chaotic cook, but like, I have no idea if those eggs are going to get thick. They might not. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to happen. What's rarely spoken about is the flip side of that, whereby I remember a few years ago having a really bad time, and I was like, you know what's going to make me feel good? I'm going to find a cake recipe, and I'm going to make a cake. And I, I'm not a good baker. I'm barely a decent, you know, cook. And I, I can kind of cook because you can sort of taste while you're cooking and know something's wrong. Whereas baking, you just have to pray and wait. And um, yeah, I was like, I'm going to make this red velvet cake. It's going to be so luxurious. And it was a whole Sunday. And I was on maybe 22 grand a year at that time in my life. Mm-hmm. And I bought all this expensive salted cream cheese and all that. And when I was at the supermarket there was no red food dye left so instead of just having a normal chocolate cake i was like do you know what i'm gonna get blue food dye and i'm going to have blue (laughs) velvet cake what do you think happened fiona (gasps) i mean what happened caroline i have to know the cake was slate gray it looked like a construction of alcatraz (laughs) (laughs) it was awful i was so I was so sad before I made the cake, but I was fucking depressed afterwards. Like it was oh my awful. God. Oh, I know this feeling so well. I mean, it could be worse. Do you remember the there's a cake in steel magnolias that's shaped like an armadillo and yes. the icing is gray and the cake is red velvet and it looks like the armadillo is bleeding out the side? Yes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. 
code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So we mentioned it a little bit already, but then Julie has her 30th birthday party where she buys three lobsters, makes lobster thermidor. Like not a relaxing way to spend your birthday. We're already getting a hint that actually very early on we get hints that uh, this is ruining their lives. This this cooking oh, yeah. project is absolutely destroying their lives. Um, and it's weird because like the movie gives very little time for uh, Julie to be happy. Like there's really not that much time where she's like, "Wow, things are going really well," and like my community is building and I'm really enjoying it and I'm finding self-satisfaction it basically goes from her being manic and nobody caring to her being more manic and a few people caring to the New York Times and that's it and so around the birthday dinner she does the lobsters and all that her her long-suffering husband is uh helps her with the lobsters and then it's yeah she has a costume on it's 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 a party where no one is having fun. And it's it's performative. Yeah. It almost reminds me of like old episodes of My Super Sweet 16, where these teenagers with too much money would throw these massive parties. They'd like hire a choreographer. They'd learn a dance so that they could do it for their friends. But no one was having any fun because the party was just horrible. They weren't thinking about like, what would I actually enjoy? They were like, how can I put on the best possible show by like, I don't know, making a bunch of lobsters that I don't want to make and I'm freaked out by and then sort of weirdly shame my guests about how expensive they were. Weirdly shaming her guests about how expensive they were. Yeah. Being like, oh, you can't, you know, there won't be any more of this because I paid so much for this dinner. It's so weird. And I can't tell whether the movie knows it's weird or not. I can't tell whether Nora is like winking at us because like, like in the in the Julia Child scenes when she's entertaining for people, it's so warm. People are having so much fun, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, this is delicious, Julia! You have to teach at the Cordon Bleu." Wah wah wah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when Julie cooks for people, she's so tense. It's a horrible atmosphere, <laughs> and um, uh, there's one time where a guy who's definitely not a friend and is definitely the boyfriend of a friend. Uh, says uh, Julie, this is um, this is really good, <laughs> which is not the same. It's just that's not the same. And then she replies with, "Well, I hope you like it because there's no more lobster is expensive." <laughs> I believe she says something like "mucho bucks," which is so <laughs> awful. Just like what what is happening in your brain, Amy Adams? Sorry, Amy Adams is lovely. Julie Powell. Um, yeah. Who I'm sure is also nice. Julie in the movie. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole... I, I feel like every time she has people to dinner, it's pretty terrible. You do see people enjoying her food, but before she starts the project. Yes. Um, yes, She keeps cooking. And it's, it's like the project gives her structure, which I guess is good, but it also kind of 
destroys her enjoyment. She has to make all these things that she doesn't actually really want. Um, and then she complains about gaining weight and her husband, actually both of them, I think, are just like taking Tums just sort of by the truck full at all times. I, I get the importance of having a theme to your year in order to get a book deal, but it does seem like they chose one that made them very unhappy. Can we talk about the marriage just generally? Yes, please. So I think this marriage is not going to last because of, well, the fact that their project kind of destroyed it, um, that they leave really, really obnoxious couples answering machine messages in a way where I'm like, oh, you you don't like each other very much. Hi, this is Julie. This is Eric. We're cooking cooking or blogging. We're cooking it's like those messages that people have their children leave on answering machines, but these are grown adults. Like, mm-hmm. no, it's very bad. And um, he does seem to want to support her, and she doesn't really have any interest in, like, who he is as a person. Um, it's so interesting. He's so it, he's so in the wife role that all biographies have. You know how, like, yeah. all historical biographies have that wife role where it's... Who like, types her- the notes. Types the notes and supports him at first and then is like exasperated by their ambition and then feels neglected. And it's sort of like the barometer for how the audience is supposed to feel. But that spouse has no internal life of their own, no thoughts, no hobbies, no nothing. What is that Iris Murdoch quote about like love being, you know, how that that you see someone else is as real as you are or something like yeah, that? Do you know yeah. the one I mean? I kind of feel like Julie does not see her husband as a real person. Like, she's not at all interested in his job, for example. Like, she wants to be a writer. He is the editor of Archaeology magazine. Like, I'm sure that he could help her do some kind of writing if that is what she wanted to do for job. But she doesn't really seem to see his job as anything. She never talks to him about it or asks him about it. Um, He's very much, like, in the traditional wife role here. Yeah. They have no chemistry. (laughs) No, none. And I can't tell if it's the actors or the characters. You know, I can't tell if it's a choice or not. Also, I think it's because she's so overly drab, if you know what I mean. Like, obviously, Amy Adams is beautiful. The styling and almost the makeup is so... Like, she has a wasting disease. But honestly, she's just, like, the embodiment of glum, except that she wears insane outfits. Like, I know you screenshotted me one, but there are several really weird, like, 2009 outfits with, like, jackets with spikes Oh, 2009 was a hell of a time for, for layering, I think, above <laughs> yes. all else. With, like, little tiny jackets over long, long shirts. I remember yeah. the long shirt period. Uh, yeah, I th- there's a scene where she's shopping, and it's supposed to be, like, one of the, the rare moments in Julie's life where things are going well. And she's like, nah, today I went to the market, and I bought all this, and da, da, da. And she's supposed to be having fun. And she's wearing a long white shirt with a studded black vest over it. <laughs> And then like a kind of a long A-line skirt, I think. But it's, it's nuts. Okay, I do think this is in the grand tradition of Nora Ephron heroines, though, because Meg Ryan's outfits in Sleepless in Seattle are also absolutely bonkers in like a very, what was that movie made? Like 1993? In a 1993 yeah. way. So I feel like there, there, there's a lot of this. In Ephron movies. I do think there's like, um, there's definitely like an Annie Hall referencing thing going on here, right? Also with the lobsters. Also with the lobsters. Oh, wow. I hadn't even seen that. Very, (laughs) 
very well spotted. And um, then all, all of this sort of tension in their horrible marriage um, leads to the aspic breakdown, which is she she boils a calf's foot to make a beef jelly sort of thing. It all goes wrong. She freaks out at him, and it's like the beginning of like the fights that will eventually lead to him moving out for a portion of the movie. Yeah. And there's a bit where she blocks the sink with all this jelly and she goes like, well, where's the Drano? And then he says, well, there's no Drano unless you bought it, which is like a tone I recognize from, from domestic life. (laughs) It's like one of the moments where like, oh no, I can't. Sometimes it's fun to hate Julie and sometimes it's just hating yourself. And and she's like, well, I'm supposed to make an aspic and also buy the Drano. And they totally ignores the fact that, like, she chose this life. She chose yep. this, this crazy You can hobby. stop at any time. You are not in the squid game. You can stop doing it. You are not in the squid game, Julie. I just want to shout that at everyone at all times. You're not in the squid game. You can make different choices. But, I mean, I think there's also a lot in these relationships, actually in both sides of the story, about isolation. Because... They're, like, they're physically isolated, living in Queens. Like, when they have parties, you can tell that people don't really come by that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the fact that they're they're shoved into this apartment that they talk about as so big, but actually is very small and has basically one room. Like, I think during that fight, she shuts herself into another room, but I'm pretty sure it's the bathroom. I think that's the right. only room with a door. Okay. And wow. I feel like this is something that makes a lot of sense to me, like, after two lockdowns with another human being of being like when you feel a fight building up over many, many days and there is nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you see that not with the fighting, but sort of there's, there's a weird sort of isolation also with uh, Julia and Paul because they live in Paris and she doesn't speak the language and they mostly seem to relate to each other. She has like some friends, but they, they spend a lot of time alone together. And then there's this really interesting scene uh, about halfway through the movie where Julia's sister comes to visit and they're all having lunch and she's oh, talking about Dorothy, butter sauce. Jane Dorothy, Lynch. It's so, so amazing. Good. I love it so much. But it's got this really weird thing because normally the person that Julia connects with is Paul. And they like eat together. They eat off each other's plates. They love each other. They give each other these like long looks. They share these jokes. And then Dorothy shows up and she's the one eating off Julia's plate. And Julia mm-hmm. is like dismissing Paul and treating him like this sort of sad servant boy, like making fun of him for saying that butter sauce is tangy, which like it is. And, and sort of like rolling her eyes about him and... And I felt quite bad for him. I was like, oh, can she only connect with one person at once? Oh, wow. I hadn't even thought of that scene that way. Yeah, and then they have to marry off the sisters so that, you know, Paul can have Julia back. (laughs) Oh, my God. Is that the subtext going on there? They have to marry the sister so Paul can have Julia back? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I do think they probably married off the sister to someone living in France so that, like... They could see the sister more something. I don't know. They also just probably wanted Jane Lynch to show up. I tried to look up Julia Child's sister in real life to see if she was actually really tall, but I couldn't find any pictures of her, so. I just loved their whole thing so much. I know. The way they just run through the train station screaming, like shrieking. And it's so like, there was a part of me that was like, oh my God, Americans screaming in public places. And then there was a part of me that was like, no, everybody does this in a train station because this is what you do in the train station. And, 
And it must have felt so much further away at that time. Like she probably had to come over on what, like yeah. a ship? I don't know. Do they have airplanes that were publicly? Yeah, it was. A, it was a ship in in in, yeah. death in the movie anyway. But it's like I don't know. It's it's the it's the post lockdown seeing people as well thing, you know? Yeah. Like I just went to Ireland for the first time in two years last week, and it was that, you know, and that the the, the and the just like. That is the thing what, that that Nora was so good at was intimacy, right? And yeah. that's what you get in that half of the movie, and particularly in that section of that half when she's with her sister and and they, you know, that thing when you with your family and when when you're with your family and you're performing your family to a third person, mm-hmm. and it's kind of annoying, but you but like everyone lets you away with it because you know it's just what it is, and uh, they talk about like. Oh, you know, dad wanted us to stay in California and breed. And why didn't we? Too tall. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing of them things is like two very tall, sort of weird looking, kind of awkward sisters. I find so endearing. And there's a part when they're going to this party and they look in the mirror together. And Julia goes, you want to say it? I can tell you want to say it. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. It's so good. I took so many notes about it. Go. I know. She she puts her hand on on, on her sister's waist and she goes, pretty good. And then they smile and they tilt their head and they go, not great. And then they just (laughs) laugh. It's so good. It's so, so good. So good. Also, I just had a thought. Is the like sort of... Wispy McCarthy plotline in the second half of the Julia section, the equivalent yeah. of like the 9 11 plotline in the beginning. It's like historical context, something bad's happening. Um, I feel like that's kind of the way that they treat it, where, you know, it, it places you in a historical context and gives an excuse for a few things in the story to happen. They don't really like go into it too much, they just talk about McCarthy a lot for about 15 minutes. Yeah, they don't go into it massively. It's funny. It, it Does it make you think a little bit of like... It makes me think that two things... One of two things and possibly both things, I think, happened with this film. One of which is that Nora Ephron had gotten to a stage in her career where she wasn't... She, you know, very beloved, wasn't working all that much. I think she probably was very selective with her projects. And when she chose this one, she kind of got herself into a situation where it's like, okay, it's Nora's way or the highway. That's that's number one. Number two, I, I get the feeling that maybe Julie Powell had probably a lot of control because if you are a clever editor or a clever writer or a clever ad- adapter of a work, you would you would definitely rearrange that story around. You would make her meet Julia. You would at least have an explanation as to why Julia hated the work. You would mm-hmm. actually break up the marriage. You know, you would, you would do more, you know? So I feel like the film suffers from a lack of editing and a lack of somebody saying, okay, but let's really talk about what this film is actually about and pull out those major strands and make them marry together. Like, let's let's have the 9-11 thing and the 1950s McCarthyism thing. Like, that's a strong theme. The idea that, like, we're a world changing very quickly on you and you having to wonder what your effort and work is even for is really strong and it's not married very well. <laughs> no. I was wondering about this with the Julia Child estate as well. Like, I wondered if maybe there was something going on with creative control there. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I know they mentioned briefly, like, whether Julia and Paul were spies, but wasn't that a thing a couple of years ago where uh, it turned out she had, like, spied for the OSS? Oh, really? 
Yeah, I think that's real. I probably I'll text you after we record this, and if it's wrong, please cut this part out so that we're not misinforming the world. That that were you a spy thing? We need to talk about that whole scene because it it is the whole movie. That oh scene. my god, yes. <sighs> that whole dinner party scene, and and again, it's just such a contrast because it it comes right in the movie around when Julie is throwing her horrible horrible dinner party, and yeah. then you see this dinner party of like two people who just adore each other for someone else's birthday. And she's also, you know, she's got like a, like a silly costume. Isn't she wearing like a big paper heart? It's a, it's a Valentine's day dinner and they're all wearing silly paper hearts. You know, it's very, it's very low rent, but very elegant at the same time. And you know, people just are clearly having a good time. Yeah. And they love each other and they're listening to each other in a way to have these these conversations. It's not just about like everyone is sitting there like thinking of a clever thing to say and then saying it in a little round. Um, yeah. yeah. And just like and the dialogue is so it's so easy. You know, all of it is so it tells us so much story in very little words. And the part that made me cry, I think it's probably the same part that made you cry. Was it like this bit where, you know, Stanley Tucci is saying like, you know, we were in China and we went out for dinner as friends and suddenly I looked up from my meal and it was Julia. And then she just looks up from her meal and her eyes fill up and he goes, and he says, it was Julia. It's I so just, beautiful. It is. It, it's, it's like, it, it's so wonderful because some of it is just how Stanley Tucci delivers it. And this is yeah. like peak heterosexual Stanley Tucci. Like I know that Stanley Tucci <laughs> is a forearm icon, but I do feel like a lot of his iconic roles are like in the Devil Wears Prada. He's not really like like a, a like in the Devil Wears Prada, he's clearly like a gay man. And and in this, he's just peak husband. Like peak <sighs> husband in an extraordinary way. And the sort of interaction they have there where he just makes this toast to her and it's it's just exactly what you'd want someone to say to know that they've yeah. seen you. And then just like when she she slips her hand underneath the red paper brooch and she just starts thumping it and she just yes. looks up from under her eyebrows and doesn't say a thing. It's so... I think it's like... It has so many levels, Fiona. It does. And they just love each other so much. Because, like, I, first of all, it's like, yes, the, these were this were a real couple who were famously obsessed with each other, and that mm-hmm. is great. But second of all, I do think, and I don't like to talk about self-inserts in work because I think it diminishes the work and it diminishes the artist. But I think, you know, like, Nora herself, she famously, like, her third husband, Nick... Like she was obsessed with him and she wrote so frequently about how she couldn't believe that later in life she got to meet the, this perfect, wonderful man. And uh, it does, it feels like that, right? It feels like her saying, her both proving to the cinema going audience and to women as well that like you can have like deep defining love in your 40s in your 50s you know what I mean this is not a young person's game it's actually an older person's game you know yeah and that's what's so beautiful about it it's like because it feels like you know there's already two real life stories in Julie and Julia Julie Powell and Julia Childs but it feels like it's Nora's as well you know it really does oh 
It's just, it's just so good. And, and the, the writing of that relationship is, I think, the strongest thing about this movie by a country mile. I mean, even just mm-hmm. small moments of the way that they interact and support each other and, and have this kind of give and take with each other's careers because you wouldn't think that a story about a woman who moves to a different country as a trailing spouse for her husband and doesn't have a job and has nothing to do and is bored as shit would be about this equal partnership because it doesn't feel like that. Yeah, yeah. But they really do make it that, you know, not not just him, you know, encouraging her to do what she wants and find fulfillment. Um, But the fact that when he is struggling in his job, she just says, you know, okay, I'll, I'll write the book. You know, we'll move if need be. Like, we can do what... And, and then he gets so excited about putting her on TV and and the rest of his life was devoted to her career. I think he became, like, her editor. Um, and, and they just did this kind of switcheroo. And I just think it's wonderful. I, even the more sort of harrowing emotional moments like when she finds out her sister is pregnant and there's no talk before that about this being something that's like a sensitive area for her something that she wants anything like that they never discuss it and they just have this this like beautiful moment where she reads this letter from her sister saying she's pregnant and she says oh isn't that wonderful news and then she just breaks down on paul for a minute and the way that he just like understands and holds her and doesn't say anything and it only takes about 30 seconds and it's just so Beautiful to yeah. see people be that vulnerable together. And the writing is so good and the performances make it work. And it, yeah, it's just wonderful. And she, and like he holds her and she cries for about, you know, 20 seconds or whatever. Yeah. And then she looks up and he goes, she goes, I'm so happy. And he goes, I know, I know. <laughs> you know, people can feel many things at once. And you can see why Julie Powell is trying to make her husband into Paul Child. Yes, you can. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't, Wouldn't we, all? we all? And also, it's this thing of like, <laughs> what was really nice to think about during this film, when you're looking at all this beautiful food, you know, in both sections of the movie, thinking like, oh, Stanley Tucci must have had a great time. <gasps> Yeah. That man loves to eat. Oh, he does. He likes to think about it and talk about it. He must have just loved it. I hope so. (laughs) You can kind of imagine Stanley Tucci, like, on the set of Julia and Julia. (laughs) Just, like, talking to all the the food people. Um, Oh, my God. He he was definitely there with the food stylists. Oh, for sure. For sure. There are definitely, like, women... Of our age around there. Like a woman who were our age in 2009 who are still working food stylists that had lots of very <laughs> cute conversations with Stanley Tucci. And you are the only people I want to hear from. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, and you, you can imagine it because, like, there's all these scenes of Julia Child in the movie, like, going around to the food stalls and, like, and she, they're mostly just montages, but you can tell she's, like, you know, learning about how to get the best oysters from the oyster man and learning about how to do these things. And, and I feel like that was just Stanley Tucci in real life. To, to, to go back to Julie for a second, because it was just uh-huh. the worst moment, the worst throwaway moment in this movie, I think, is when she is making the boeuf bourguignon, and mm-hmm. she has to go get new beef for the boeuf bourguignon. 
and there's like a whole montage and she's just talking over it. She's like, so I had to go and I had to get new uh, ingredients and I had to go home and I had to take them to cook or whatever. And you see her at the butcher and he's the butcher at like Dean and DeLuca or something, like a fancy butcher. And you can see her just saying, oh, it's a, it's like a sort of a French beef stew. And he says, Bourguignon. And she just looks so surprised. She's like, oh, oh, you know what it is. I'm like, he is a professional butcher. Yes, he knows what Bourguignon is. It's not an exotic dish, Julie. No, no, it's, 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 uh, it's having to be the main character again. She's like, I, I am the only one who has read practicing or mastering the art of French cooking. Sure. A very famous book. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Julie, we I hate know. her because we are her. I know, it's the worst. Uh, this, well, this is what makes something cringe, right? That, like, you recognize yourself. You recognize yourself. Like, the the scene... We, I know we haven't, like, gone through this chronologically, but I think it's fine. <laughs> the scene where, you know, she gets that profile in the New York Times... Um, everyone's calling, everyone wants to sign her, all that stuff. And then she gets word that Julia Child doesn't like what she is doing. And that whole scene of her on the bed with her husband, just her at different angles, like, just obsessing. Oh my God. Why doesn't Julia Child like her? Is it because she's disrespectful? Is it because she uses the F word too much? All this stuff. It's, It's so... It's very me when I found out that Candace Bushnell was mean to me. Oh my God, yes! Well, very and, me. And very me that day. <laughs> and the fact that, she, you know, she gets this call that the guy says what? Like, oh, frankly, she was kind of a pill about your blog or something like that. And she just hangs up the phone and says, yeah. Julia hates me. And that's <laughs> so relatable. The, the, the film, it has this whole thing where it's like... um. Her husband is like, you're, you're a narcissist. I'm tired of this being, you know, the, the Julie show kind of thing. You, you, you refer to these things as being these, you know, little meltdowns, but it's not. It's a nightmare and it's our lives, which is... Ve- and he's like, I thought this would be a fun adventure. It isn't. And it's like, you're considering this movie was made in 2009. And since then, I think, you know, so the whole thing of having a life online that people read about think about look at that you have to make beautiful and for for them and you know it's it's a cliche at this point but the reality is almost never the case it does feel a little prescient yeah you know it feels like ahead of its time that whole bit it really does and it I mean, because in order to make herself feel like she's doing a real thing she has to create this fake structure Mm mm-hmm for presentations specifically, I mean, God, it would feel awful to be. I mean, he's basically a proto Instagram husband. He is. That's exactly who he is. Yeah. Um, and weirdly, so is Paul Child in that you see him at one point standing on a chair to take a picture of Julia yes. like doing a recipe. But he's so happy. He's like, let me get you with the camera. Um, and that's that is what being an Instagram husband should be and not like take 700 pictures of me standing in front of this wall with angel wings painted on it. Um, been seeing a lot of Instagram husbands in Paris lately. It's a, it's a fun time. They all look miserable. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's where they're grown, I'm her- I, I hear. Yeah. It's weird then because we have this simultaneous thing of like Julia Child getting her book rejected. We haven't even talked about the three chefs. Like that really comes to nothing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that could might as well not have been there. Just the no, whole thing of like... All. 
She meets two French ladies. She becomes their friend. One of them is lazy. <laughs> there are two reasons for that section. And one is that one lady saying, what is marshmallow fluff? Well, looking at the uh, American cookbook. And one is so that Bunny McDougal can show up <gasps> for 10 seconds. That is such a scene stealing, that moment. It's that is so great. It's very Judy Dench as um, Elizabeth I, right? Yes. In Shakespeare in yes. Love. But, uh, Fra- well, what is her name? Frances, um... oh my God, I know I want to say McDormand, but it's not McDormand. It's not. I know who it's, that um, is. Frances Sternhagen. Frances yes. Sternhagen should have been nominated for an Oscar the same way Judy Dench was from winning Queen Elizabeth. It's <laughs> so good, Fiona. I know. And the fact that she's just like, you know, talking about like the life insurance money and, and she she intimates that her husband killed himself, I think, by just making a gun and pointing it at her own head. I, she's incredible. I, I desperately want her to be in everything, in every movie forever. Um, playing it's so, every role. It's so fucking good. And the thing of like, she's so kind of like proper, but just a bit loony. Do you know what I yeah. mean? And it's, and the way that um, the three women, particularly Julia, are responding to her is so like, who the, who is this freak who we once respected? <laughs> kind of thing. It's so perfect. And then it just cuts to like her walking up the stairs um, with Stanley just being like, yeah, and all she wanted to talk about was how she'd been screwed over by her publishers for hours and hours. I was like, yeah, that's publishing, baby. Okay, so he- here's the thing. I was watching that scene, and I was actually thinking about another episode of Sentimental Garbage, which is, oh. I believe, one of the Sex in the City ones where you and Dolly were talking about what it's like to be on a book tour. And like yes. all these like very specific small things about being on a book tour. And... I was like, I feel like in a year when Julia Child has actually published a book, she too will be bitching about the index and she and Irma Rombauer could get together and be like, these assholes. Exactly. exactly. And they'll be having this great time. That it, People who um, are about to publish a book or have not published one but want to, they kind of always have that starry eyed thing. And that's why the industry is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. People being like, yeah, but when you see your book in a shop, ain't that swell? And you're like, yes, it is swell. And then, like, I remember going to a friend's book launch for her second book and her just hugging me and saying, I'm so glad you came. And she hugged me and then she whispered into my ear, they fucked me on publicity. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it is. It is like, Holding, holding people responsible for the crushing of the slow crushing of your dreams and your own, how you feel slighted by the universe. You then hold your poor publishers responsible forever. And sometimes they are, and sometimes they aren't. (laughs) What is even the message of this movie? (laughs) What is the message of this movie? Mary Stanley Tucci, which I'm sure a lot of people would do, um... Let's see. Fuck Meryl Streep, kill Amy Adams. I think the message of this movie... <laughs> okay, well, I was going to say something sincere. Um, I think the message of this movie is want real things. Like, I feel Want like real things. Amy Adams wants fake things. Well, no, that's not true. She wants real things, but she doesn't really want them. Like, she wants to have a life mm. that looks like somebody else's life because she does not have the emotional fortitude to construct a life that looks like the life that she wants. Now, here's my next question. Does she learn that lesson or do we learn it for her? Yeah, I think we learn it for her. I think it is a cautionary tale. 
it is a cost, but because I, I, I don't think she ever does come to that realization of like, because I do think you're right. That is the message of the film, but I don't think she comes to it. Like the movie ends with her going to the Smithsonian and leaving a thing of butter, and I, and I guess the breakthrough there is supposed to be like. You know, oh, it doesn't matter that Julia Childs doesn't like me. I like Julia Childs, and that's fine. <laughs> it's like the, the true message. I mean, I guess that's something, <laughs> but it not really as powerful as like yeah, the idea of of Julie like striking out on her own. You know, learning to want what you what you actually want. She has all these anxieties yeah. about. Oh, is the thing that I, I'm doing good enough for my friends? Or, you know, I should, I should do the thing my friend is doing so that we're competing on the same field and, and allowing other people to kind of set the terms of what matters, including Julia Child. Yes. But, like, yes. the only person who sets the terms of what matters is you for yourself. So you just have it's to figure out It's very true. But it's a lot of work. And it was 9-11, so she was having a hard time. <laughs> And crucially, it was 9-11. Um, <laughs> I do think there's something almost good. <laughs> I think it's like, on the whole, I, 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 I enjoy this movie and I really enjoyed it watching it again today. I don't know if I think it's good, but I like it. And, that does, and that's all that matters. Um, but I do think there's something almost in the fact that, and they almost say it, but then they shy away from it. Uh, the fact that Julia Childs was a revolutionary and she was doing something different and no one had seen a book like hers before and Julie Powell is also doing something different because nobody had ever approached cooking like this before or so the movie true. posits. Um, and it's almost like the thing of like, yeah, sometimes... And it is this very true thing of sometimes your heroes become the establishment and the establishment is rigid and the establishment rejects the new. That's why it exists, right? To preserve the old. And that I think that would have been an interesting point to make because it does have this twinning, really, of um, Julia Childs facing rejection from mainstream publishers and then Julie facing rejection from Julia Childs. And it, it just feels like a massive missed opportunity. Yeah, it does. The moral of this movie is don't miss opportunities, movie writers. <laughs> and that's it. And that's it. <laughs> This is like one of the bitchiest podcasts yeah, I've done. Yeah, sorry about that. I mean, it's... No, I've loved it. There's been okay. too much like love, too much sincerity lately. <laughs> I love you being the Americans in France correspondent. I do my best. When the next season of Emily in Paris comes out, you can have me back and we can talk about that. I don't, I don't think I have it in me, Fiona. Oh, no. I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> All right. Thank you so okay. much for coming on again. I love you. Bye. I love you too. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me about the podcast at sentimentalpod at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Gentlemen podcast. Thank you to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the artwork, and Hannah Varro for the mixing.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.